If you've seen or read Fifty Shades of Grey, you'll be familiar with the acronym BDSM. But before there was Christian Grey, there was Stu. 44 years old, born in Toowoomba, now a resident of Canberra. Stu is a sadist whose tool of choice is rope. As you'll hear, there's more to sadism than inflicting pain, and there's an artistry to rope play that you might not expect. Welcome to Love Canberra, a show about love, sex and relationships here in the heart of the nation. I'm Ivana Ho. Stu had a pretty normal childhood. His parents divorced when he was six and he and his younger brother were raised by their mother. Growing up, he felt isolated because of his sexuality. He was around six years old when the initial stirrings arose that he'd later be able to put a name to. It all started with cowboys and Indians. I knew what I, what I, what I was interested in when I was a, a little kid. I can remember playing, uh, you know, kids playing cowboys and Indians and stuff like that and wanting to be the, the cowboy who tied up the Indian girls all the time and always had these sort of weird feelings as a result because... because but because my sexuality wasn't developed, I didn't know what those, what those things were until I was older. Because Stu had these feelings at such a young age, he's convinced that his kink has always been part of him. I always, uh, you know, in inverted commas, fell in love with the girls that, that, I, that I tied up doing Cowboys and Indians. So um, clearly that was... Obviously, for, to me, that, that's the, the biggest indicator that it's not something I learned it's something I was born with and that that desire was was there and, and I liked seeing when I was a kid watching tv shows as well with um anything that had bondage in it anything that had images of women being tied up even as a kid I would seek those images out and, and, and look for them and want to see them and I'd record them on on the VCR and watch them again and that kind of thing this is well before my sexuality even grew into anything I suppose Mm. and so when you got older then and you still had these sorts of um, inclinations Mm. or these things sorts of things still excited you Mm. um, did your feelings change about it because it's one thing to be a kid and you know to have these interests but then as you get older I suppose um, and you start to hear more about what people think is right or wrong and you know socially acceptable or not did your feelings change about what you were into i figure i was attracted to girls and i and i knew i was attracted to girls but i also wanted to do other things with the girls i was i was attracted to which at the time if you if you imagine that there's no context for that if so putting aside the idea of what we know now in terms of of BDSM and consent and those kind of things if you like seeing images of women being tied up and abducted and you don't have the context of consent that goes with it that then led me to be quite concerned about what what the things were that I wanted because you look at it and you go okay why do I like seeing images of women being tied up and abducted and those kind of things well that must mean I'm you know, I'm wired that way, and I was quite terrified that I, you know, that I might become a rapist or something like that. That I might be a person who wants to enact those sorts of things. So, like I said, it wasn't until those later teenage years when I figured out 
consent. You know, once I learned about consent, it made things clear and it made things solidify. And, and plus the fact that people were talking about it, that other people were talking about it and they were talking about it in this sense of that these were things that people could choose to do together. But also, also too, because I didn't have a community at the time, I was just me, you know, a kid growing up in Toowoomba, because I didn't have a community to access, I still felt lonely and I still felt isolated and, you know, I was pretty unhappy as a teenager because I was, I was struggling with those feelings. I was quite conflicted and sometimes I would feel like what I was doing was the wrong thing and I would have collected things. I would have collected rope and chain and, you know, magazines or, you know, bits and pieces of that imagery that I wanted to see. And then I'd go through a period where I'd be like, no, this is wrong, this is terrible, and I'd throw it all away. Um, but, of course, you know, those feelings don't go away, so they come back to you. Yeah. So these things that you collected, did you sort of keep them in a bottom drawer? And, yeah, yeah, I know, kept them in my them yeah, I kept them in my, in my cupboard, you know, in a box in my cupboard, and I um, can remember getting, I can actually remember getting a fake ID, I had a fake ID made, um, in order to buy a video, because back in that day it was mail order, so I found a place where you could buy a bondage video from, and I got this fake ID. And I went to the post office and I got a mail order um, at, the, at the time because there was no internet, there was no, I didn't have a credit card, so I got a mail order and I ordered this video and, and, and I was terrified the whole time that I was going to get found out um, and that my secret would be revealed and, and I had to get it delivered to the home address so at, every afternoon I'd get home from school, I would check the post box at home, the, the mailbox at home because I was terrified that mum would get the package um, so when the thing came finally, I can remember it was um, it was like it was safe. You know, the the transaction had gone through and the police didn't come knocking on the door. So, but it was like that. It was it was scary as a kid to want those things because you felt weird and you felt different and stuff. So I think that's the difference these days is information is so readily accessible. You know, you can go online and you can find other people who are like you and you, you can find that community almost instantaneously regardless of what it is that you're into or you know what your sexuality gives you you can find people um you know i'm not saying kids aren't isolated these days but yeah it was it was difficult it was difficult do you remember very much about that video yeah i do actually it was called the setup and it was a badly made 1980s porn and i remember the 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 star had um, um, there were there were a couple of protagonists, but um, there was a guy who was like a white slave trader type of thing, and he was abducting and tying women up and and selling them on the on the black market on the slave trade market. And I can remember he had this really bad mullet, you know, like a nineteen eighties mullet. Um, but um, of course, the women always, you know, found themselves in situations where they allowed a complete stranger to tie them up and. And, you know, the, pre the premise was just ridiculous, but it had bondage in it and it had the first time I'd ever seen real live bondage. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a video where that was the purpose of the video as well. Like, you know, I used to watch, you know, TJ Hooker and all those 1980s TV shows and stuff. And sometimes the women in those would get tied up, but that was kind of 
incidental to the show, I suppose. Throughout these years, Stu told no one about his kink. He didn't even tell the only person he knew who shared his interest, a woman he became friends with in high school, whom he remained close to as he entered uni. She was loud and proud about her love of being tied up. But even with her, Stu was too shy to share a secret. I remember I used to go to her place all the time and we would just hang out as friends. And, um, and, I, and I, I wanted to tell her, I can remember wanting to tell her so badly, but I could never quite bring myself to tell her and she kept she always had all these strings of romances and she was always she had a new a new boyfriend every you know almost like every other week kind of thing so i kind of felt like i couldn't fit into um change tracks off the friends that kind of friend zone idea into actually you know getting to the point where i could say to her i'd like to tie you up and i'd like to do those sorts of things with you and she would tell stories about trying to get her boyfriends to tie her up and and they wouldn't be into it or it'd end in a comical sort of sort of outcome so but we did we I remember we did at one point we were at a party and uh she was um we we're all we'd had a few to drink um and then she loudly announced to the people who are left oh we should play a game where um, we try tying each other up and we give ourselves you know we time ourselves to see how quickly we can get out sort of thing and uh i remember that that party and i remember um being a, another guy um, it was like belts and a, like a robe sash kind of thing that we used to tie her up. And uh, I remember she was like struggling on the floor and, uh, you know, though everyone else was laughing and carrying on and having a good time. And I can remember just finding it to be like the most incredible experience to watch another human being being tied up in my presence as well. This was the first time ever anyone had been tied up in my presence. And uh, yeah, so I um, I was so I was so turned on by the scene that I actually came while I was watching the scene, and I was so embarrassed, like I was frightfully embarrassed because it was such an it was such a powerful thing that overcame me. So I, I quickly left the room, kind of thing. But uh, that, that's how powerful it was. It was it was such a powerful thing for me that it that it overwhelmed me. The the the, the moment overwhelmed me. Stu lost contact with his friend after she moved away. He doesn't know where she is now, but he says he still thinks about her a lot. When Stu was in his early 20s, he moved to Brisbane with his Zen girlfriend. Yahoo groups were all the rage around that time, and they were a popular tool for those in the kink community to chat with one another and organise meetups. Here, Stu talks about going to his first kink meetup. BDSM scene, uh, we would organise these things called munches, and munches are where you go to a restaurant or a cafe or whatever, and you have you have food, hence munch. Um, but it's a it's what we call a vanilla a vanilla event, so everybody dresses in you know vanilla outfits, meaning not not black and not kinky kind of thing, and we just go and have lunch or dinner, and it's, it's a way to meet people in the scene, and. It, at the time, it was it was the way, the only way to get introduced to the BDSM scene was to go to a munch or to go to an event where people kind of checked you out and made sure that you were, um, you know, not a psychopathic serial killer or something, and um, and you 
was kind of like a, a requirement uh, sort of thing. So you'd go to, I went to my first munch in, I think it was 1996 was the first munch I went to, 96. And, um, and I was terrified and I was in the valley. I remember I was in the valley at a restaurant in uh, Brisbane Fortitude Valley. And I'd made contact with these, with the local scene and they'd said, you know, if you want to come to a party, you have to come to a munch first. And I remember walking up and my hands were shaking and I was really nervous about it and walked in up to this restaurant and saw this group of people like laughing and and having a good time and for some reason I knew it was them I knew it was the people and I was there to meet and uh, because kinksters tend to be pretty kind of larger than life people we tend to like if we go to a, a munch or a restaurant or whatever we're always the loudest group of people there stand uh, out yeah we kind of stand out well i think we you know we tend to have pretty bold personalities and we tend to be um i you know i guess you know, a bit bon vivant or something like that i guess <laughs> so yeah so this was a group of people there and i went and um introduced myself and sat down and had lunch with them and met a few people who later on became long-term friends who I'm still friends with today so um, and surprise surprise they're just a regular group of people they're no different from anybody else and um, and I don't know what I guess when I look back I think I don't know what I had to be scared of but it was just something so completely new and different and yeah but just regular folks so how did you get from sort of this period in your early 20s, this party where you watched this friend of yours being tied up to learning that there was such a thing as BDSM and finding out that there was a community that you could potentially be part of. That had probably happened before. So once I found the internet, or the kind of the precursor to the internet and found images and stories and chat, people talking about it then, I realised that it was, I guess I realised that it was a form of sexuality, like it was a legitimate form of sexuality. Um, so I already knew by the time I went to my first munch, I already knew and I'd already I read and read and read and read and read. So I looked and researched and I, and I downloaded images and I, and so I, I accumulated. At one point I, I, I looked back and realized that I had about 18,000 images that I downloaded um, of people tied up. But it kind of grew from there because I went from want, wanting to see them from a from a pornographic perspective so you know clearly to get off like I got off on seeing those images to starting to see rope and starting to see the way people were tied and wanting to understand how they were tied like how how was that person tied up how did they get into that position could I could I recreate that I guess so I was starting to think well no, I don't just want to look at it from a from a porn perspective I want to know it I want to know how to do it um and at the time, I think I kind of, I guess when you, maybe it's when you're younger, um, I don't know, but you kind of, I, I tended to fetishize rope and and, and bondage and, and, I, and I wanted, I thought I wanted to do the bondage and wanted to do the rope, um, you know, in a kind of a fetishy kind of way, because um, I also have a shoe fetish as well. I like women in high heels, so I have a very much a high heel um, fetish. So I think it was a bit like that. And then once I wanted to do it to, with people, once I wanted to tie people up, then I wanted to learn how to tie people up and get get an understanding of it. So 
once I, that's why I joined the BDSM scene was with the idea of meeting people who also wanted to be tied up. And I didn't want to just go along not knowing anything. So I'd researched a lot. So I guess it wasn't until I actually joined the scene that, that I then wanted to actually go and get involved in going to play parties and, and tying people up. But it was also a very, a very much a, I, I felt like you had to build up your credibility, like you had to get credibility, um, which kind of came over time. It was a very slow process, came over time. You've probably caught on by now that Stu is a dominant, in the sense of dominant and submissive. I asked you to elaborate on what it is that appeals to him about bondage and how this fits with his dominant leanings. It was about control. So it was about controlling another human being. And the, the appeal of it was, was about preventing someone you know initially preventing them from running away or but it was it's more about taking away uh, or, or controlling aspects of their physical movement so uh, but also it was also about um, taking senses away as well so if you blindfold somebody or you you um, put earplugs in their ears or you you gag them or you um, prevent them from moving. What, what I found was that I wanted to control their senses and control their reactions to things as well, not their reactions, but control the inputs into a person and kind of focus them, focus them down. So that became, I guess, the reason for it. But from a from a, a dominance perspective, well, I guess it was about dominance in terms of that desire to control somebody. Initially, like I said, it was a bit of a fetish more than anything. So there was a, there was a visual aspect to, to it as well. So the idea of women being tied up and struggling, you know, bound and gagged and blindfolded and, and, and you, know, you know, naked or semi-naked, there was a certain fetish to it. What I learned was the most powerful part of it was the connection to the person so it went from being so when i actually was tying people up it became about the connection to the to the other human being that i was tying and it became less about the things i used to tie somebody up and more about how i interacted with the person um, and i can remember going to a party this was when i joined the scene so it's early probably 97 98 sort of time uh, maybe 97, um, went to this party and uh, there was another guy there who I'd, I'd done a bit of bondage with um, who was quite interested in bondage as well. And we played with uh, one of the hosts, um, so the couple who were hosting the party, so the host, um, the wife of the hosts of the party. And we, we tied her up, we, we put some rope on her and then we glad wrapped her, um, her body. Um, and then... We were playing around with her. She was in the standing standing up position. We were playing around with her, and somebody brought out a bowl of ice. And I and I she was stood up and tied up. I brought out, I took out a piece of ice, and I was just touching the ice on her mouth. And I remember her and putting her tongue out while I was touching the ice around her mouth. And I and I leant in, and I whispered into her ear, and I said, "Who told you to put your tongue out?" she gasped and she 
like this and, and there was this like visceral reaction to it and it was that moment that I that I recognized the connection so she was under my control and that I was calling the shots kind of thing now she could have said you know untie me or I'm not enjoying this and I would have let her out but at that moment she kind of surrendered to that control so she put a put a tongue back in her mouth and then from that point onwards if I touched the, the ice to her mouth, she, she, her tongue stayed in her mouth. Now, I wasn't her master and I wasn't her, her dominant, but in that moment, she kind of belonged to me, you know, for that moment. So it became about the connection and now that's what it's about. It's not about the stuff you use, it's about how you connect the other person. What happened after you unwrapped this person and untied her? Did she... Obviously, things seem to have sort of changed, and and while you understand that um, what happened in that scene happened within that scene, yeah. did she respond to you differently outside of oh, it? I mean, maybe a little bit, but I think it was, I think it was contained contained to that moment. So when she was back out again, clearly she's not under my control at that point. So we've kind of released we've released the connection between us as well and that's quite often with people I tie like I can have a very intense connection with somebody at the point I'm tying them uh, and then you can let you know once they're out I'm not I'm not telling them what to do and I would never I would never say to you know never try and assert my dominance over somebody who I wasn't their dominant uh, so you could be tying someone and doing all sorts of things to them and controlling them and, and what have you and then when you're out of it then it's like you know, would you like a coffee, <laughs> you know, or a beer or something like that? So it, it, it can be on a, on, I think it can be on a play basis. Um, I guess it's like, you know, it's like sex, I suppose. You can have someone who you could have, you know, wild, crazy, amazing sex with and then hang out with them and have beers with them as well and not, you know, it's kind of, for it's compartmentalised, so it's to its the experience is contained, if that makes sense. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm. So when you sort of arrange to um, do some rope play with somebody, mm. um, there is a certain dynamic that's involved between you and the person who's mm. being tied. Mm. Can you talk a bit about that and, mm. um, you know, just what it is that they're sort of getting and what you sort of get and how you sort of play off each other? So I'd kind of... I'd kind of break it down into I'd break it down into two types and this is just my opinion so every, obviously everything's my opinion here but my opinion is is that you can have a top bottom experience with somebody where somebody wants to feel the experience of being tied up in which case they bottom to you and you're the rope top you can also have a power exchange a, a more stronger power exchange situation where they they give you they they surrender their control to you and you and you take control of them so you can go on a slightly different journey with them i've played with people in that top bottom experience and that's a that's a really that can be a really lovely experience and and um quite intense but when i look at that i often think that the bottom in that experience is the bottom saying i would like these things done to me so they're kind of saying these are the things i'd like to have happen and in that situation you oblige them and you you know you can have great rope and you can have great experiences doing that 
Uh, I think what I go, what I tend to want more though, is a situation where somebody says to me, um, within the bounds of you know negotiation as well. So there's hard limits and there's soft limits, and there are things that they may not want to have happen to them, where they say, "I'm prepared to exchange power with you and give you the power in that situation." And that's more what I seek. What I'm looking for is someone who's willing to let go and allow me to take them on a journey. Uh, so I may, I may just tie them, incorporate the sexual aspect to, to rope play with the person. It'll be about where I think the connection goes. Uh, so it's about the purity of the power exchange and, and, how, and letting that person or getting that person to let go because it becomes quite a deep experience. So, you know, we have this, we have this concept that, um, uh, you know, an idea of flying or an idea of, of space or subspace and that kind of thing. Well, we kind of have this idea of rope, rope space as well. Um, and that can be quite a, that's probably the sublime experience is if you can get to that, get to that point. But it, it requires a lot of trust and it requires the ability to surrender completely to the experience. Um, you still, still, you know, with the ability to use safe words to, you know, slow the play down or to stop the play and those kind of things. But that's that's kind of the essence of, of rope play to me is, is getting to that point. Rope play falls on a spectrum of being sensual to being sadistic. What characterises the play as being one or the other, or somewhere in between, has to do with how the rope is used, whether the person doing the tying is using rope to hurt the subject often called a bunny, or to make them shiver with pleasure. Here's Stu explaining central rope play. It's, it's about how it feels to have your body moved around and, and touched and, and the sensation of rope. Um, I'll try and give an example. Central rope play works really well if you, if you have kind of really unstructured rope where you start off tying a person and you move the rope around their body um, you may not actually do a, a specific form of a, of a tie you may just move the rope over their body add a cinch in move down to a different point add another cinch in you might lift up their ankle and, and connect it up and move around their body and kind of flow around a person's body you might tie them to an object you might um, Put parts of their body under stress, but you don't necessarily um, you don't necessarily um, look to shock them or to hurt them in any in any kind of deep way. So what you're trying to do is kind of flow with the person and flow with how they feel. Um, and you can incorporate wax play, or you can incorporate a little bit of pain, or you can incorporate sex. You could tie them up into a position and fuck them, or um, play around with that. But it, it can kind of it's it's kind of organic. That's the central play is quite organic. Um, there's a there's a rope um, master um, previously Sydney based now in Melbourne who focuses very much on central rope play. And one of the things that he does is that he can he can take longer to untie a person than he takes to tie them. And part of that will be moving the rope across the person's body. And I've seen him drag a piece of rope like millimetre by millimetre across a person's body and and you can see the, the intensity of that experience for the person. So that's kind of on the central end. Um, what I also learned was that sort of in the middle of that then is, it, I guess, is still connective rope, but, but rope where you may be um, 
where you've been focusing, for example, on, on specific forms of rope play. So, you know, you've got floor-based rope where you're tying a person on the floor. Or you might have partial suspension where you're tying an ankle in the air or two ankles in the air or a part of their body off the floor. And then you could move into full suspension where they're fully off the floor. That kind of sits in that. It still can, absolutely can still be part of sensual rope play because I've seen that done as well. But there's this kind of you can kind of start to get into more performance type rope, and then on the far on the opposite end of that is is sadistic rope. And sadistic rope is something that I like I like very much. And that was I learned a few years ago from a, from another rope master in Sydney, um, because I, I'm a sadist as well. So I, I I use sadism in my in my play as well, um, and I've previously been very much into flogging and beating people and that kind of stuff um, but I, I learned from watching this rope master in Sydney that you could use rope to hurt people and you could do that by deliberately applying pressure in places where you might not have applied pressure you know might you, where you wouldn't ordinarily apply pressure or you might drag rope across a person's body in a way that hurts them um, or you might do styles of tie that are incredibly painful to experience or you might um, apply certain styles of rope to a person where the rope gets tighter and tighter and tighter and more unbearable over time uh, and and that sadistic form of rope works really well with someone who also enjoys you know with people who are masochistic obviously uh, and and actually uh, you know can be you can use it to pinch the skin or you can you can tighten down rope against the shin bone or you can you can find pressure points and put rope against pressure points um, still still maintaining safeties and, and and checking in on people making sure they're okay so there's a there's a quite a broad range of, of rope experiences that people can have it's all quite controlled isn't it because you kind of understand what it is that you're doing and what effect you'll be having on that person i think it's about i think it's about the connection to the person it comes it always comes back to the connection with the person if you're well connected to a person you're playing with you can kind of hear them you can hear how their body's responding you can hear how they're breathing you can hear how um, you can hear if they're in, enjoying a certain experience. So you could start off playing, you know, sensually with someone and you, you, that you might hear them in terms of of a direction you might want to go with them. And you can explore out in a certain direction and then go, well, you know, they're, they're breathing a bit hard or, or you know, that experience wasn't great for them, so I can move back in another direction. So it's about whether the person you're... you're playing with is responding to what you're doing to them and i've had situations where i've done um rope with someone where i was doing sadistic rope with them and i got to the end of the experience and i and i was talking to them afterwards and they said to me that they weren't they didn't particularly enjoy the entire experience and what i realized was was i wasn't hearing them i was doing it for me not for the connection um so, you know, you could have the most masochistic person in the world and they might be, you know, for example, they might be having their period, so they might be incredibly, their body may be incredibly sensitive to pain or to overstimulation and that might not be a great experience for them. So if you're not listening to the person you're playing with, then you can't, you can't share in the experience that's going to be good for the both of you. So 
So you mentioned that you're a sadist. Yeah. What is it that you enjoy about... So does that mean that you enjoy inflicting pain yes. on people? Yeah. Yeah, so I ha- have always enjoyed sadism and, and I started off by, like I said, I like, I like flogging, um, I like caning, I like using my hands, I'm, I like spanking, um, I like causing other people pain, consensually causing other people pain um, because it's as much about control because you, what you're doing is controlling you know, their pain. So you're causing them pain but you're also controlling the amount of pain you give them. Um, so I guess that kind of... When I saw... The first time I saw sadistic rope, it was like a light bulb because I was, I'd was i never thought of using rope to hurt somebody. I would previously tie somebody up and hurt them or I'd tie them down and hurt them uh, but learning about hurting people using rope is it, because you only need one thing. You need a you need a bunch of rope, and and that's it. There's you, the other person, and some rope. Um, so it very much fitted in with my sadism, and and I like the I like the tension. Like I like being able to add tension to a person. So I could put a piece of rope against a person's ankle bone. And you know yourself, if you if you press on your ankle bone or any exposed bone, that can be quite painful. You can put a piece of rope against somebody, that will hurt. It'll hurt for a little while, but then your body kind of eases into the pain, and you can that kind that pain can kind of dissipate a bit. And then all I have to do is go back to that knot and just press on that knot. And all I have to do is increase the increase the pressure on that knot, and it'll be excruciatingly painful again. So you can keep a person right on the edge of their tolerance for pain. You can bring them right to that edge and you can play on that edge. And that's that's one of the most beautiful things about sadistic rope is that it's there and it's inevitable and I'm in control of how much it hurts. And again, that's an incredible part of the connective experience in rope. In terms of that connective experience, I wonder, is it the case that you enjoy inflicting pain because it's perceived as pleasure by a masochist or um, are you able to sort of separate or do you separate it out from that is it possible to separate it out from that i think i think that's a bit that's a little bit of a simplification and and i think that's a, that's kind of a common way of looking at masochism is that is that it's a it's a form of pleasure i i think masochism is much more complex than that and i think it's about for a masochist, the pain is pain. It's not, it's not necessarily felt as pleasure. But I think masochism, certainly when you when you're playing with someone from a from a more of a DS perspective, masochism is to me is like I'm giving myself over to you and I'm handing control to you. If you choose to hurt me as part of that experience, then then I'll let you hurt me. So to me, masochism is, is kind of the, one of those things that's at the heart of power exchange because masochists don't just like pain as pleasure. Um, and I had, I had an example where I was playing with a partner and I had them tied and I was hurting them a lot. And at some point I knelt on the bed beside them and I caught their hair while I was, while I was hurting them. And she went from obviously enjoying the experience to screaming, ow, ow, you're on my fucking hair. So she clearly didn't enjoy that pain. So the pain has to be in context. If the pain's not in context, you know, masochists don't like pain any more than anybody else. So, but pain is also, it also drives a, a response in the body and, and there's, a, 
you know, there are, there are endorphins that, that rush in and there are, you know, there are chemicals that, are, that act in the body that respond to the feelings of pain, that try to dull the pain and to try and reduce the pain. There's clearly a, a, a chemical reaction that's part of it, but it's ultimately it's, a part, it's about enduring, enduring the suffering as part of a DS dynamic. So allowing someone to hurt you and enduring that pain that you wouldn't ordinarily be okay with. So masochism is quite complex and not being a masochist myself, maybe you should interview some masochists, but not being a masochist myself, that's that's kind of how I understand masochism. Mm. I guess I'm trying to understand what it is that you enjoy about inflicting pain because, um, you know, a lot of people tend to sort of go about life trying to inflict as little pain on others as possible and bring as much pleasure right. to people yeah, as sure, possible. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, look, I think... I, I don't. I mean, I don't like hurting. I, I wouldn't just hurt somebody. I I, I, I'm, I abhor violence. I abhor the idea of inflicting pain on, on another person, out of context. Um, I don't feel like I have any right whatsoever to hurt another human being, and and in fact, the idea is sickening to me. But in in context, in terms of exchanging power with somebody, I. I get the most pleasure out of someone who's willing to, to lend me their body or give me their body in order for me to do the things that I want to do to them and with them. So if I want to hurt somebody, it's I guess it's like the, the, the polar opposite or the mirror image of what it is to be a masochist. Um, a masochist will surrender to you and allow you to do kind of, you know, I will say anything, but they'll let you do whatever you choose to do them to them at to to them at that point well if i've got that opportunity to do that well i can then indulge in that in that dark side of myself who like you know who wants to put um, bamboo skewers into someone's the bottom of someone's feet and to drive their pain and to actually drive the feeling of pain for them and to and to see how far i can take that pain with them to ride along the edge with them and to give them that experience um yeah, this is quite complex. I mean, sadism, I mean, I get pleasure out of it, undoubtedly. I, I love watching someone in pain. Um, and then five minutes later when they're out, you know, if they, you know, stub their toe, I'd put a Band-Aid on it kind of thing. So I don't know, it's, 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 sometimes it's hard to grasp the why of it. But I guess ultimately it's about control. It goes back to control. Because um, you could look at it and say, why, why would you tie somebody up? Why? Why not just fuck them? Why not have sex with them? Um, why do you need to tie them up? And I guess it keeps coming back to control. Um, you know, I like long-term torture as well, so I like having someone bound to a chair and just simply being able to, if I want to, you know, clamp their nipples or if I want to slap them or if I want to, you know, um, beat them, you know, with a paddle or, or a crop or whatever, to be able to kind of go on that journey to, to raise their pain level to have them right up on the edge to you know to get them to cry or to get them in tears or to get them experiencing that pain then letting it drop back down and sometimes they alternate as well so i go between pleasure and pain as well so i'll ramp up the pain and then crest across the top right at the edge right where it right where it hurts a lot and then drop back down and then indulge in something that's pleasurable and probably i guess 
you know, from a chemical perspective, perhaps what you're doing is you're using that, that endorphin rush and those feelings and, and then you're raising up their sensitivity, you're doing things with them. And then you turn around and you go back up and you climb up through the pain barrier again. So. We all look for explanations as to why we are who we are, why we like certain things or why we behave the way that we do. When it comes to dominance and submission, having and surrendering control, there's a popular theory amongst lay people that you seek to exercise control in your sexual life because you're lacking that control over your professional life, or vice versa. I put this to Stu, who said that those sorts of notions aren't really reflected in the reality of BDSM. The stereotypical example is the is the British parliamentarian, you know, so you have this powerful man who enjoys being powerful during the day and then he goes and he sees his dominatrix and and, and she she dresses him like a baby or, you know, whatever, or she, she infantilizes him or, or she, um, you know, sissifies him or something like that and bends him over and fucks him with a strap on and that kind of thing. And there is that kind of idea that people want to do that now that may be the case that absolutely may be the case where people want to release control or maybe they feel like they don't have enough control in their life my experience for me personally um, my sexuality has never been tied for me personally to how much in control I feel Um, I've had periods in my life where I felt very much control of my life and enjoyed BDSM and I've had times in my life where I haven't felt in control of my life and still enjoyed BDSM um, so I, I kind of think the realities are more, are more based in someone's sexuality. It's what gets them off. It's the thing that drives their sexual feelings and their, their feelings of sexual fulfillment. Um, you know, it's, so I, I think of BDSM like any other form of sexuality. So, so, um, you know, gay people don't choose to be gay because for some reason they feel like they need to be, you know, on today I'm going to be with a with a guy or a girl kind of thing. It's not for me. It doesn't seem to work like that. To me, it's about it's what you really want. So when I was a kid, like I grew up with those feelings. I didn't just think them up one day. I think people can discover them later in life. Absolutely, you can go through your life having what we'd call a vanilla sexuality and then discover a BDSM sexuality at some point, but. I think it's much more, a much deeper down kind of thing. So Stu's part of the vibrant kink community that exists here in Canberra. I asked him whether many people outside of the community are aware of his interest in BDSM. I tend to be fairly open about who I am. I I use my real name um, online. I don't put it on Facebook as as much as I can because I've got young family like you know i've got nephews and nieces and those kind of things so i tend to keep that away for that but it's not because i I certainly don't feel ashamed of it i'm certainly not um it's not something i need to hide um you know i've had tinder profiles and okay cupid profiles with my real name on them that have talked about my bdsm polyamorous sexuality sexuality and, and relationship styles so i'm not highly closeted you know, my, my real face is on is on fat life and that kind of stuff. Um, but I think that's come over the years too. I think when I was younger, I was a bit more worried about it. But now it's it's not really that big a deal. I come out to people who who I think will will be open minded about it. Um, you know, I've had the odd person here and there who's probably not 
understood or wanted to understand but overall I've never had I haven't really had any really negative experience as a result of coming out and I think we're in a day and age now where people recognize a very broad range of sexuality they you know and gender identification and all that sort of stuff I think we're in an era now where it's a lot safer to do and I don't have a conservative family so it's not like I have to worry about my conservative Christian parents finding out or anything like that so do they know my mother has an idea, but I think mum is the kind of person who is is quite happy not to know. I don't think she would really care, um, but because it doesn't affect her life necessarily, I think she'd be fine with it. So I, I think she has ideas. Well, she certainly knows I'm polyamorous because I had a polyamorous partner that I took to Queensland to visit mum. So, <laughs> so she knows about that. You've been listening to episode three of the Love Canberra podcast. In a future episode, you'll meet someone who is sort of Stu's opposite, a man who subjects himself to unimaginable amounts of pain. As for what's coming up next... I'm still always trying to settle matters and you know, recommend mediation with a family law barrister or recommend arbitration or recommend a round table because I still think going to court is like the, I call it the nuclear option, it's the worst option for anyone and even though the cases that go to court are the ones that pay the big bucks because they go on for two years, you know, they're always terrible for the clients. That's next time on Love, Canberra. Don't forget, if you'd like to tell me your thoughts about the show or share your own story, you can email me at lovecanberrapodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.